Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Six p.m. Book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. Uh, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are the other two hosts of the show. They're with me now. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the program. Uh, who is on this program as a guest this week? <laughs> what is this show? Guys, I've done a few podcasts. Which one are we doing right now? <laughs> I kid. Evan, What uh, what's going on this week? Aaron, this week on the Long Form Podcast, I talked to Jennifer Sr. She was on the show many years and hundreds of episodes ago, and I've wanted to have her back for a while, particularly since she wrote this story for The Atlantic in 2021 called What Bobby McIlvain Left Behind, which is a story that won the Pulitzer Prize, National Magazine Award. It got turned into a standalone book called On Grief. Uh, so there was that, and she has a another big story out in the Atlantic, a very personal one about her aunt called The Ones We Sent Away. Uh, the subtitle is, I Thought My Mother Was an Only Child, I Was Wrong. And that was a good uh, excuse to get her back on to talk about both and everything in between, what goes into these stories, what she's trying to accomplish with them, and it was a great conversation. We are brought to you uh, in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Jennifer Sr. Jennifer, welcome back to the Longform Podcast. Evan, it's awesome to be here. It's been some years. Uh, many some things years. have happened in yes. between. Uh, <laughs> Trump, a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Our yeah. kids have gotten older. Lots of things. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't actually, I didn't even have any kids. That I, I listened back to the original one. And one of the things I say is, this is the first, you know, parenting book that I've read. I don't have any kids, but like I'm talking to other people who are parents about this book. And now I have two kids. So I still treasure that book, actually, um, even more so now that I oh, have kids. Oh, God, you're an angel. Oh, my God. Wow. So I'm delighted to hear that because there was always that dreaded other response, which was, I read your book and decided I'm never having kids. And I always thought, <laughs> really? On the basis of like a book from some random woman? You must have been really on the beds. <laughs> you know, like, uh, that's that's frightening. And I had no idea it was that negative. Good grief. I thought I said enough, love, you know, kind of positive things. I mean, far more people said, you know, how affirmed they felt. It's partly just the title. Like, it really encapsulated in a way that when certain things happen, it pops into my head. Like, all joy, no fun. Like, <laughs> when it's not fun. Right. Somebody said to me that the title, unfortunately 
was also one of those titles that made you think, oh, great, I don't have to read the book. It's all encapsulated right there. It's like, you know, um, the body keeps the score. Great. I know what that's about. <laughs> I don't need to read it. You know? <laughs> it's like, wait, you do, you do. And I know, I know people tend to dwell on the no fun part and not on the all joy part, uh, which, yeah, anyway, it's fine. It's fine. So when we when we had spoken last time, the book had come out, and then you kind of said uh, there were some things you were toying with, maybe writing another book about. But you were working for New York Magazine at the time. You'd gone back to writing features, and then next thing I know, you're a book critic for the New York Times. And then after that, you became a columnist for the New York Times. And I want to talk a little bit about that. What prompted your move from book writer into book critic, and like, what did you learn being a book critic? First of all, I'm going to have to go back and listen to our conversation because I have no memory of ever saying to you that I wanted to write another book ever again. I despised writing a book. I just couldn't bear the solitude. And it made me so anxious for so long. Um, I I did, I think, have one kind of vague idea (laughs) saying that I wanted to look at like a group of people after a death, you know, and see how sort of like as a bookend to what I, you know, to see what happened after somebody very central to everyone's world died and to see how everybody reformed their bonds and got back up. And I mentioned it to Tina Bennett and she was like, I don't know, books about death are really hard to sell. We'll see. I mean, my my client Atul Gawande has this book coming out about death. We'll see how it does. (laughs) It did pretty well. You know, like that book did okay, which is not a knock on Tina Bennett. We just didn't know how the market was going to receive it. You know, until then, I think books about death were iffy. But um, what happened was, well, when I left to go on book leave for All Joy and No Fun, New York Magazine was a weekly. And when I came back, it was a biweekly. You know, it was already kind of coming undone. And I didn't realize it, but I was on the short list to replace Janet Maslin. I had been a person who wrote freelance book reviews for this Sunday book review. I knew they liked me. I didn't know they liked me enough to stick me on a short list without even telling me about it. And one day they phoned me and said, were you aware of this, that you're in this hat with like five names? And I said, no. And they said, well, are you interested enough to stay in that hat? And I said, sure. You know, because I could sort of see the writing on the wall. I mean, New York Magazine was, all the long form writers were being put on contracts or told that their time was running out. And I was lucky to still be on staff, but I didn't know how long that arrangement would last. And uh, I got the job and immediately regretted it. Just, Mm. you know, suddenly the one thing I loved most, it had been decanted of all of its pleasure, you know, uh, reading. And not only that, but I was reading and then metabolizing and then reviewing and writing. And then it had to go through the snake three books for every two weeks. So that would be one book every four and a half days, including the weekends. So I felt like I was kind of force fed like a foie gras goose in a way. And I had a seven year old at the time. I never saw him. I feel like I lost two and a half years of that kid's life. I mean, it was really a lot of work. Just reading. You were just lost in an endless stack of books. Well, and choosing them and reading 50 pages and deciding the book wasn't good enough to review and not wanting to give a first-time author a negative review so that you were like murdering their career and while it was still in the crib and you know all these things that you're doing. I mean, 
ethical choices that people don't know that you're actually making, that you're trying very hard not to give negative reviews, unless you're reviewing somebody who's established and they can maybe absorb it, it's easier. But I was the third string critic, so often I didn't get my choice. I was left with the crumbs. But the idea that that you wouldn't want to give a negative review, particularly to a first-time author, is that, do you feel that's pervasive among the critics, like the other two critics as well, or that was particular to you? Um, I think that's a, a, a feeling among the other critics. I mean, Michi had the luxury of just choosing whoever she wanted, right? Michiko Kakutani was an institution, so she got all the famous people. And Dwight and I had different tastes anyway, often. You know, he chose a lot of macho books and a lot of books about like rock and roll and food, you know, and stuff. This is Dwight Garner, right? Dwight Garner, yes. And, you know, I I did mostly nonfiction. As Janet once said to me, oh, stop it. You know, you're, you're congenitally serious whether you want to be or not, you know. So I chose a lot of serious books. Um, and a lot of first time, I had more first timers than anyone else just because I was the third string person. But I think generally book critics don't want to harm someone's career if they can, you know, when they're, when someone's just starting out. I, I don't think that book critics are sadistic in that way. I think book critics often feel betrayed and annoyed if they're in the middle of reading someone's fourth novel and it's not as good as it ought to be or whatever, you know, and I think they often despair uh, Michi once said to me in a very um, despairing way, she said, you know, how many interesting things, and then she named a mid-list author, you know, can you say about so-and-so's 11th book? I totally understood what she meant. Like, she had to come up with fresh things to say about so-and-so's 11th book. You know, she knew so-and-so's work well. She'd read the previous 10, and then she had to read the 11th. You know, and that's hard. That's just hard. What do you do? I think everybody gets sort of stuck in their own particular predicaments as a book critic. Yeah. Do you feel that being a full-time critic changed your writing at all or your approach to writing or your feelings about writing? I felt an enormous pressure as a book critic and as a columnist to to make every sentence interesting. Uh, A book critic in particular, because you have to justify why you're the person at the New York Times who has the daily job. It must mean that you are smarter or more stylish or have a more original associative brain with more stuff in it, more connections to make. There has to be some justification for why it's you. And so I felt terrible pressure to sound smart and write with a certain kind of snappity pop sentence by sentence. And so I think that pressure remained when I went back to writing long form stuff. Hmm. I think it probably brushed up my style game. It also made me say things more concisely. I became ruthlessly self-editing. And then you moved on to becoming a columnist, which, you know, it made sense to me because even when we had talked, you had covered politics for a while. So you had that in your background, and then you'd written a lot about social science, and you had this broad sort of generalist approach to the stuff you were doing. Right. But then what was it like to then try to distill that into opinions that you would have every or analysis opinions that you would have sort of every week or bi-weekly or whatever was required. Yeah, I, I disliked that too. And for a different reason, <laughs> you might be noticing a pattern. Maybe I never belonged at the New York Times. Um, you know, I mean, writing on deadline was never my my dream. It's Some people are true. Uh, this is Janet Maslin's phrase. I just love it. She call, I, I, I love Janet. She, 
she once very endearingly called herself a deadline psycho to me, and I've never forgotten it. Um, because some people are deadline psychos, they just they need the and I think Dwight would gladly say that he is one. You know, he lo- he loves nothing more than pounding out something brilliant in four hours. Um, whereas I felt like I needed a day and a half to write anything smart, even if it was just 800 words. Um, that wasn't true for Collins, but how did it translate? I, I disliked it for a different reason. Um, so uh, the pandemic comes along and I am working out my anxiety by writing column after column just because I know that I can. And David Leonhardt goes full-time to do the newsletter and they say to me, why don't you just take over his Monday column do it quietly. We won't announce that you're doing it. You can do his Monday column and you can write a midweek column online virtually. And let's see how that goes. Just see if you like it. And for a while, it was really nice because the pandemic was so terrifying that reporting during it and having an outlet and a a reason to pick up the phone was fantastic. Mm -hmm. But then as time went on, here's what I realized about columnists, right? I mean, they sort of know what they want to say going in. Whereas I write in order to figure out what I want to say. And I am at heart an ethnographer. I like blending into a family or blending into an environment or blending into the Senate or blending into some demimonde and taking notes. And I tell everybody who I'm with, just treat me like I'm the family dog. I'm friendly and I'm sitting there in the corner and you should pay me no mind. When Annette LaRue wrote Unequal Childhoods, she wrote that sort of in the introduction that that's how she wanted the families to think of her. And it was brilliant. And it's exactly how I like people to think of me. So what was I doing being a columnist? I mean, columnists have immediate, they have a certain way of interpreting the world. They pride themselves on very quickly, something happens in the world and they have an immediate response to it. And you know what? I don't have reflexive responses to anything. <laughs> I think slowly. And <laughs> I like marinating in environments. It was so wrong. And it very clearly became a mismatch in my mind. And I wanted out. And I called Jeff Goldberg. And I said, you know that job that you offered me a year ago or a few years ago? And I was dumb enough to turn down. I am now begging you for that job. <laughs> And I promise, if you offer to hire me, I will just say yes. Like, there will be no back and forth. I will just come. I will just quietly migrate to the Atlantic. And I made a mistake. And he was a mensch. And he said, it's okay. As soon as I have the money for you, I'll let you know. And four months later, boom, there I was. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Tonight, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. We 
Vieira's tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight only on Disney+. Plus. Well, it feels like you, you made good on it because the very first story, am I correct in saying the very first story yeah, when you came yeah, back to the Atlantic yeah. was the Bobby McIlvain story? Yeah, that was my first, that, that was very freakish to have your first story be probably the best thing you'll ever do. Well, can we just walk through it? Yeah, sure. Like this was a family that you knew who had lost their son and brother on 9-11 but you've known them all these years, so we're you know getting on twenty years after nine eleven. So first, what prompted you to think this is something I now might want to write about? I have such a banal answer. Oh my god, it's ridiculously banal. Are you ready? Yeah. So it's like my third or fourth day at the Atlantic, and Jeff calls me up, Jeff Goldberg, editor in chief, and says, "So hey, let's discuss what you're going to be up to. You know, there's this, there's that, there's this, there's that, and." Oh, just as an aside, you know, we're thinking, we don't know. I mean, I hate special issues, but we were thinking maybe of doing an anniversary issue for, you know, for September 11th, but we're not sure. And uh, George Packer can do the big thing, David Frum. You know, there are all these different ways we can talk about the reshaping of American policy and foreign policy. But what we don't have is a story about people to whom this happened. And I'm just taking a flyer here. Do you happen to know anyone to whom this happened? And I said, yeah, I do. Um, And what I thought I was pitching was a story about a marriage, actually. That was the quickest way to pitch it. You know, Jeff's a busy guy. And if you've ever spoken to him, he speaks even more quickly than I do. I mean, it is amazing. If you do a five-minute interview with him, you will probably have like 4,000 words on the page. Um, and he's busy. I didn't want to waste his time and explain the diary and explain all of the kind of crooked aspects and loop-de-loops that the story had. I just said, here's what's so interesting. They lose their son. It's my brother's roommate, and he becomes a truther, and she has no interest in this, and I'm interested in how they stayed married. I mean, I, like it sort of moots the whole point about, like, how do you talk to your Trump-loving uncle? I mean, who cares? You know, I mean, this is a guy who fell down a rabbit hole and she's still married to him. And the most unimaginable, terrible thing happened to them. How did they stay together? And he was like, I'm in, do it, go. And that's how it started. And it wasn't until a few days later that I thought, that's not what this is. This is something else. What was the something else that you that you thought it was? Okay, so do you ever listen to the podcast Heavyweight? Oh, of course. I had okay. Jonathan on, on this show, in fact, earlier this year, Jonathan Goldstein. It's extraordinary what he's been able to do. So I realized at some point that, holy shit, I had potentially the greatest heavyweight episode ever on my hands if I could get that diary. So now I'll back up and explain and give context because people might are going to be twice sort of confused if they don't know what heavyweight is and if they don't know what butt diary I am referring to. So what Jonathan Goldstein does on heavyweight is he is in the closure business. He's like kind of a time traveling shrink who basically like, you know, a girl, a woman in her forties will say, I was dumped in high school or in middle school by a group of girls. And I don't know why. And 
Goldstein will track those girls down 30 years later and say, why did you dump Janet? You know, or whatever, you know, or our babysitter abruptly left us and I loved her. Why did she go? Or in the case of the second episode where his brilliant but slightly sad sack friend said, Moby walked off with my my box set of Alan Lomax's songs from the South and Moby never thanked me for them. That's a classic. And he became a, a monster superstar. And why did I never get my thank you from Moby, much less my discs back? I want Moby to thank me. So Jonathan <laughs> contrives this meeting with Moby. And it was a classic. Exactly. That's what put it on the map. Okay. And I thought, I want to be in the closure business. 20 years ago, Bobby McElvain dies. And his diary is sitting on his desk. Bobby, my brother's roommate, was this avid diarist and had been keeping diaries since he was a teenager. And he had kept them right up until September 11th. And when he died, his final diary was sitting on his desk. And when the moment came to clean out his room, my brother and one of their dear friends from college named Andre and Bobby's father and Bobby's almost fiance, he bought the ring. And my, bro- my brother and Bobby shared an apartment on the Upper East Side. They had a two-bedroom apartment. Standing in his bedroom, and there is his final diary. And his fiance says to his father, can I have this? Because she's looking at it. She's thumbing through it. And she's seeing that her name is all over it. And she wants this thing to remember Bobby by. And his father, who is in this total fugue state, it's like September 13th says, of course, because he's trying to be kind. And she takes it. And he says, maybe you'll even find something in there that you can use for the eulogy. But when he tells his wife about this, she becomes so upset and says, how can you give away the last thing our boy ever wrote? That was a chance to hear him talking to us fresh observations, to hear what was on his adult mind, what this boy was thinking. How how could you have just so cavalierly, so unthinkingly given it away? And I want every last molecule of what this kid has written. So she got into this very tense negotiation with the woman who would have been her daughter-in-law, asking her, may I have it? And this woman, her name was also Jennifer, like mine, kept demurring, saying, I'll think about it. I don't know. She lived with them for a time. Jennifer moved into the McIlvain's house because she could not bear the silence of her own apartment and her own depression. And she got into these very increasingly fraught conversations with Helen, who would have been her mother-in-law, Bobby's mother, saying, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. And then finally, the answer was just, no, this diary is mine. And if you want to have any further conversations about this, you will have to talk to me and my shrink. And she left their house for good, burst into tears, slammed the door, got in her car with her diary and her clothes, and never saw them again. That was that for 20 years. And for 20 years, Helen dreamed of that diary, perseverated about this, got caught on it, like her sock would get stuck on a nail, you know, she, you know, I mean, it just, she couldn't let go of it. And she made all of us who knew her 
desperately want to know what was in there. I wanted to know what was in there. I had fantasies. I personally had fantasies about breaking into Jen's apartment and getting that diary. My father, who is a lawyer, thought about suing, would fantasize about like how to sue, which of course you can't do. That's bananas. And then I thought, wait a minute, I'm a journalist. I can walk through the front door. On the 20th anniversary, I can appeal to everyone's better angels here. I can say to Jen, can I see it? Like, can I have a peek? If she had it. And then I'd be in the closure business like Jonathan Goldstein. (laughs) I can bring that diary over to the McLevins. Ta-da. Oh, my God. You know, it occurred to me like at 4 a.m. that I could do this. That took a lot longer to explain to Jeffrey Goldberg. <laughs> was there going to be a story? I mean, because the story is about a lot of things. And I feel like what makes this story so incredible is that it's a story about grief and what grief does to a family. And it's also a, this Jonathan Goldstein-esque, heavyweight-esque, I didn't think of it that way until you've said it now, story about the way people perceive the world and the stories they tell themselves and how they're telling a story about someone else and that other person is telling a story about it and those stories don't match. But do you think that would have worked if you hadn't, if she hadn't given you the diary? I don't know. And believe me, I had many long anguished nights about that. Uh, You know what? I didn't have too many. She said yes, really quickly. Hmm. So uh, the question was resolved. I think I would have weighted the story much more heavily toward the kind of marriage they had. And also what you said, I was still very interested in wrong stories. I mean, uh, journalists are under this kind of moral obligation to make sure that we get at the truth. And we think of that as being the primary cardinal, ordinal rule. That's what we do. But I think just as important is like, what we also do is try and figure out why people believe what they believe even when it's wrong, when it's floridly, weirdly wrong. Like Bobby's father believes that the government did this. And he doesn't just believe that the government did this. He has this really weird bespoke theory that it had to do with not wanting anybody to discover what was on the 23rd floor because the FBI had all this information about how we were requisitioning Japanese gold from World War II and using it to finance the dissolution of the Soviet Union. I mean, the whole thing is so out there, like Kuiper Belt out there. Like it's floating out there with the asteroids out there. It's really weird. And he really believes it with all of his heart based on things that he's read and pieced together. And that's not what Helen believes. And they are still married. And what they have in common is their grief and having raised this beautiful boy that no one knows the way they do. And no one knows what it's like to lose him the way they do. But that feels like a tricky thing. It feels like there's a pressure, primarily driven by social media, that when you write about something like that, to also condemn it. That if you're trying to write about why he believes what he believes without also... And you, I mean, you lightly lightly imply to me that like it is out there, but you don't, you'd come out and say, this is ridiculous. This is wrong. I can't believe it. In the piece I never do here, here with you, I do in the piece. I was very restrained. The most I did was make it clear that it was wrong. I said that this was widely debunked, that there was 
no evidence at all for this, that 19 homicidal zealots hijacked airplanes and crashed into the World Trade Center and brought it down. You know, that's how the towers fell. I made that very clear. But this was the only point of contention between me and Jeff the whole way through. He loved the piece, had like no edits, but for one. He wanted a sentence that was condemning. And I said, no. Hmm. And we went round and round on this. And I said, I'm not condemning him. I'm, I'm not doing it. I'll say it's wrong. I'll say that the belief is wrong. I'll say it's patently false. But I won't. Um, I, that's not what this is. I'm not here to condemn anyone's belief system. I'm, I'm here to show what this belief is doing for him. This belief is. And what was interesting is. No one kicked up a fuss. The truthers were not angry. They did not think that I was mocking them. And those who are very passionately committed to making sure that the truth about 9-11 is out there did not kick up any fuss, saying that I was giving this man the mic. I think everyone understood that this was a story that had been forged in the crucible of one man's pain, right? And that therefore... It was what it was. It served a purpose. And it's not clear that Bob McElvain Sr. would ever have had this belief if his son were alive. I sincerely doubt it. I really doubt it. I think he would have believed what you and I believe. This story won the Pulitzer Prize. And I want to ask you about that in the context of another story that you wrote for The Atlantic. So you wrote this story about friendships and how they fall apart. And also parts of it were about making new friends and where friendships go and the, what the nature of a, of a friendship relationship over time as, as people age. And in this piece, you wrote one of the best things that I've read about the role of envy in friendship. <laughs> yeah. I was like, everyone it's like loves the, that. <laughs> Cause it's like the thing that no one quite talks about sometimes. I mean, especially when it comes to creative endeavors or, you know, anything where status is on the line. And you wrote this. And then as far as I could tell in the timing, shortly thereafter, won the Pulitzer Prize. Did you not, not that it's your responsibility, but did you feel like you had become the person for other people around you who then envied you because you have this thing, the Pulitzer Prize that doesn't actually like fundamentally change your life? Maybe, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But like, to other people feels like, oh, if I could only have that. See, you know, I think it might have, and I might not have been quite aware of it, but like, I mean, the way I see it is like, I've been around for so long that if you win a Pulitzer when you're, how old was I? 52? It's like big whoop. By the time you're 52, honestly, what you're praying for, if you are me, is a clean mammogram. That is all you want. You want to be healthy which might be a good segue into the ways that I'm not anymore. I mean, I, I, I um, was too old for the Pulitzer to matter much. You know, I think they're nice ego boosts and they're nice affirmations for youngsters and they can sort of change the arc of your career slightly. But what, what was I going to do with it? You know, I mean, I'd had a nice career already. I already had the job I wanted. I was so lucky. I had already lucked out. I was far happier when I had a clean mammogram like four months later. Like I was dancing around my kitchen like in ecstasy. 
you know, because you get to a certain age and other things start to worry you more. And, you know, your own mortality looms into view. And really, I don't think young people think about dying, but people my age actually do. Like, we really do. And so a prize is like, it's it's it just takes on like a slightly more, I don't want to say trivial valence, but it's just, it's not as important. Yeah. Your health also intersects with this most recent story you wrote a little bit in terms of like how you were able to do it. But I want to set that aside for a second and just first talk about the story, um, the story, the ones we sent away about your your aunt, and people should go read it before listening to this. Yes. Um, but maybe just describe what's in the story about how it came about, because it's, it's a funny way that it came about. Yeah. So it has to do with my husband, who you know. Yes. Mark Horowitz. Great editor. Excellent editor. He wanders over to me and he says, have you seen this viral Twitter thing, this tweet and phenomenon that stemmed from it? This theater director in the UK posted a picture of his nonverbal son and said that it was his 25th or third birthday. I can't remember. And that although he had never said a word, he had taught him more than he ever could have possibly known. And it was a very sweet, sentimental tweet. He wasn't doing it in order to get a lot of likes or to be political. And it produced this unexpected avalanche of replies, all from parents of children who were nonverbal or only minimally verbal, um, pictures of them. These beautiful pictures of all these nonverbal or minimally verbal children of all different ages. Some were very little, but some were adults. Some were older adults. Some were sent by their siblings. So they were like in their 60s and 70s. And Mark said, you ought to go look for it. And so I looked for it, found it, and was transfixed. And it was only like 30 minutes into looking and bawling, because it was beautiful, that I realized, oh my God, my husband made me do this because I have an aunt who I have met only once, who is barely verbal, who is institutionalized, who we never talk about, and who we never, ever, ever see. So that made me decide. Those were the those were the days. She was born in 1951, and she was institutionalized before she even turned two. And she had an intellectual disability, and they didn't know what it was. The doctors kept insisting she was normal. But at about a year old, my grandmother went to the doctor because my grandmother was sick, and she had my aunt with her. And the doctor took one look, not at my grandmother, who was sick, but at my aunt, and said, is that child getting the care she requires? And my grandmother said, what do you mean? And the doctor said, that child is a microcephalitic idiot. Those were his exact words, because that is what you said in 1952. And she was then advised, my grandparents were advised, to institutionalize her and to go on and lead their lives. A whole generation, two generations probably, did that. At, at what point did you think of it as something you were going to write about? Was that true from the beginning or was it? were you delving back into your family's history for your own reasons and then, and then you fell into thinking, well, okay, maybe I'll write about this? I had wanted to meet my aunt. I did meet her when I was 28. I asked my mother to take me, and I had no journalistic aims at all. 
at that moment, I thought, I want to meet my aunt. And it was awkward. We didn't bond. The group home she was living in was not particularly warm. We were left alone in a room with her and we didn't know anything about her and we had no way of really relating to her. But when I proposed seeing her again with my mother, I knew I wanted to write about her. I knew I, I thought I'm going to do both because I, which sounds mercenary, but it wasn't, it was a way for me to um, feel emboldened to ask lots and lots and lots of questions and to spend lots of time with her and to get to really know her caretakers, which I'm sure I could have done without my iPhone recording the whole thing. But I don't know. It made me feel like I could ask impertinent questions maybe, or get to the heart of things, like cut the small talk and say, okay, okay, but what, what is my aunt really like? You know, if people were kind of circling a subject, I could really go right to the heart of the matter. I wondered if it also, some of the things that you have to think about and learn about the way she was institutionalized are very painful. And is it protective to be sort of pursuing it as as a story. That's very astute, and I would not have actually framed it that way, but you're absolutely right. It does. It, it kind of places a scrim between you and all of the raw and awful feelings that you're experiencing because you get to think your way out of them and write them. There has to be some coolness in order to put them on the page. I mean... This is not a cool story. It's a quite a warm story, but um, it still has to get, you know, filtered through your prefrontal cortex first. It can't be all your alligator brain going, oh my God, the pain and the distress that this poor woman must have felt. And also the guilt, the horrible guilt that we had not seen her and that we had just in some quiet way colluded to erase her from our lives. I mean, it, it was, it's appalling if you think about it. In writing about that, it seems very difficult to navigate the idea that like something wrong happened here, but also a lot of the people involved thought they were doing the right thing at the time. Yep. How did you sort of f- try to figure out how to put those pieces together in the story? The same way I wrote about Bob McElveen Sr. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, you you just write about those people with compassion. There's a reason why they're doing what they're doing or believing what they're believing. Bob McElveen Sr. had to believe what he believed in order to make sense of something unimaginable and too painful for me to contemplate, losing a child. My grandparents put their child in an institution because one specialist after another kept telling them, that it was best for my aunt. It was the best thing to do for her. They had no way of knowing that these institutions were in fact these gothic palaces of horror and that everybody in there was being neglected and that the people in there led terrible lives and that had my aunt stayed with my grandparents, she would have led a much better life. And let's face it, the United States is not set up or it certainly wasn't then, for parents to take care of their disabled children. My grandparents both worked all day. They were working class. 
And, you know, they were living in Flatbush in Brooklyn. I mean, they were not, what were they going to do with my aunt all day? They needed, and and there was nothing like the kind of social services that the state provides now where you get free occupational therapy and physical therapy and speech therapy and you can mainstream your kid and you can get a special, you know, an individualized education program for your child. And I mean, for free, there was nothing like that. Nothing. So, you know, I tried to imagine the pain of my grandparents having to send a child that they bonded with away. I mean, they were the victims of this too. And they visited her every weekend. I mean, they didn't pretend she didn't exist. You know, the harder thing was my mother, who at six and a half saw her own sister get sent away. And my grandparents had no language to describe what had happened. Like they had to tell my poor mother that her sister got sent to walking school. I mean, that's what they made up on the fly. God knows when. I mean, for all I know, they cooked it up four seconds before they told her. You know, it didn't sound very thought thought through because, of course, my mother at some point when she was about eight said, why is it taking Adele so long to learn how to walk? And she became hysterical. She became helplessly unstrung, you know, saying this is, when is she coming home? You know, she had all these lovely memories of her little sister who, as far as she was concerned, was perfect. How is she supposed to know? She was six and a half. All babies are adorable to a six and a half year old, especially if you've been begging your mom for a sibling. Yeah, it's 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 very it's devastating to read. Yeah. How does it feel in terms of opening this all up for public consumption? I mean, it's an amplified version of writing about the McIlvains, but it's your own family, and it's opening it up to criticism about the way your aunt was treated. Yep. You know the reactions to it. How do you sort of prepare yourself for doing that? Evan, I'm praying. I don't. I don't really know. I mean, I, I, on some level, I'm praying that it will have the kind of McElveen's response where everyone will understand the heart and the intent behind it. You know, as I approach this with like only the best of intentions, but I honestly don't have any idea. People have very strong feelings about this stuff. Really strong feelings about this stuff. It feels much more political in a way. Um, and I tried to super depoliticize this, you know, to locate it at a moment, a historical moment in time, and to show that my aunt was this painful case study in lost potential, you know, and how different her life would have been if she had been born in 2023, or for that matter, 2010. But how, do I, how have I prepared for it? Well, I mean, my mother read every version. You know, she read it as I was writing. So there were no surprises. Um, the, you know, the Ayala family saw it, you know, because they're just these like wonderful caretakers to my aunt. My aunt spent 24 years in their house. I mean, my goodness, you know. Um, so, uh, I mean, they're, they're her true family in a way, right? So uh, beyond that, God, you know, it's just, it's kind of up to the universe. I'm just praying those, what can I say, you know? I mean, it's supposed to be archival in a way, right? I'm I'm showing the way people with intellectual and physical disabilities were treated back then. We also write in the story about about the consent issue, which is this other ethical question. Oh God, yeah. It reminded me of um, 
Luke Dietrich's book about oh, patient HM. HM. Yeah. Yeah. Who, a good book. who couldn't consent to yeah. these experiments. But you you grapple with this in the story, this question of, you know, your aunt is an adult and she can't necessarily consent to you writing about her. So the question is, should you or should you not? Oh God, I went round and around on that question. And I'll tell you, so there are several things to say about this. My aunt can't consent to anything, good or bad. She can't consent to having a mammogram. She can't consent to getting an ice cream cone. And you know she likes them. She couldn't consent to any of the terrible things that I'm sure were done to her when she was at Willowbrook, which was shut down. It was a state institution that became almost a signifier in and of itself for being one of those hell holes where people with disabilities went to languish. I finally decided that I was going to err on the side of writing about her because number one, we had erased her and I wanted to humanize her. She belonged back on our family tree. I felt very strongly about that. And to suggest that I had to sidestep or be gingerly about the ways in which her life was different, that would mean that I thought there was something wrong with it. And I was done with all the shame. There's nothing shameful about any of this. And I was not going to act as if there was. Not with having coffin Cyrus number 12, which is what she had. <laughs> you know, not with all the things that she has. I mean, I just wasn't going to, I just wasn't going to pussyfoot around that stuff anymore. Enough. Well, you mentioned in passing your own health. And I wanted to return to that because you've written about having long COVID and- It sucks. It's yeah. awful. I wanted to ask you about how it, how it intersects with this story, both in a, in the literal way of like, how did you manage to find the resilience to do this story, which was already, I imagine, extremely emotionally challenging, but also in the figurative way, like how does it, did it intersect with your understanding of this story and your aunt or influence it? I would love to be able to claim that because I am now compromised physically in a thousand ways, that it gave me a different perspective, but I'm just not sure that's true. Hmm. Um, it definitely affected my ability to do the piece. Um, I wrote three really long pieces for the Atlantic in my first 10 months. I worked at superhuman speed. So within a year I had done about 40,000 words or 36,000 words or something, a lot of words. And then 13 months had to go by for me to get these 13,000 words done. Hmm. I was suddenly a professional patient going from one doctor to another. And there are days when I can't sit up. There are days that I can't stand up, but not sitting. I mean, that's a problem. I wrote this story largely while lying in bed with the laptop on my stomach. Because I had gone, I had really declined over the spring when I wrote it. I never had brain fog, so that wasn't an issue. But just being upright was an issue. And by the end, traveling was a huge issue. There is a moment on tape when I'm out in the suburbs of Kansas City. Um, you know, I found a person who had my aunt's very specific, unusual gene mutation. I found a little girl who lived outside Kansas City, and I actually say to the mom, Grace. Do you mind if I lie down on your couch and we keep talking like that? And she said, absolutely not. Go for it. 
And the last two hours are just me on her couch lying down, conducting the interview while like flat on my back. And it was hard then driving back to my hotel. It was hard then getting home. And it was hard from that point on, just like pulling the whole story together and getting the story done. So like, yeah, there are lots of hurdles. You know, um, I'm working only part-time this summer. I'll try and come back and work full-time, you know, starting in September, but I'll be doing it mostly from bed. I write in bed. I'll I'll be reporting from in bed. I am podcasting with you from, like, I'm lying down right now. Mm -hmm. I'm lying down. I'm not even sitting in a chair. I'm like lying down. I mean, it's, it's, it's bonkers. Uh, I just don't really know if I'm supposed to recover, if I will recover, if I'm in some acute phase, if I'm still in cytokine storming, I don't know what's going on, but I know I was immunocompromised starting out. And what kills me is that the rest of the world is moving on rightly. So they should God bless them. But I'm so envious of everybody who knows that they can just go out and do whatever they have to do, because if they get COVID, whatever, they'll get over it. They'll be fine. I assumed like that I would also get over it because I had a very mild case. But the reason I had a mild case, it turns out, is because my body wasn't fighting it. And when people are really sick with COVID, what they are really sick with is their own immune response, which is putting up a ferocious fight, whereas mine just didn't even try. You wrote this piece for The Atlantic that was a, kind of about the etiquette of asking you questions about, you know, how are you feeling kind of questions. and How are you feeling is fine. Are you getting better? I think that, the- that is what I can't abide because I'm not getting better. It's like you're asking somebody with a chronic disease if they're getting better. You would never ask anyone with MS if they were getting better. It would never cross your mind. But it felt like it echoed, I don't want to make a direct comparison at all, but it, like it echoed with your writing about grief and the way, for instance, yes, Bobby McElvain's mother experienced people asking her, you know, tell me about him kind of questions, like pe- well-meaning questions, even good questions that sort of turn a different way because you're living in a world that other people are not occupying and they don't understand how it's affecting you. I think the tell me about him questions, she probably would have welcomed the kinds of questions she didn't like were often similar to mine. Um, questions where people want an upbeat answer and you don't have an upbeat answer to give, right? Mm -hmm. Like you must be feeling better by now. No, well, maybe there's a, you know, God works in mysterious ways. There there are hidden blessings in this, you know, screw you. Like what? As in, you know, I mean, so that was bad. Um, I think also the kinds of things that she didn't like that I don't like is everyone that, would offer up a story like, oh, we were really afraid about like, you know, our friend's cousin's son who was there and, but then things were fine. You know, so people would all say to me, oh, I had COVID and I was so scared, but then I was fine. And it's like, well, that's really different because, you know, 14 months later, I'm the opposite of fine. You know, so I'm glad that you were fine and that you then went about having like a wonderful life. Like that's not what happened to me. So Last question, which is like a kind of an expansion of what I was asking there, but I, I feel like there are there are echo like when I went back and read the Bobby McElvain story, and then I read this most recent story, and I read the friendship story. I, fe- I I felt like I felt these echoes through these stories, and you've written about everything under the sun over the years, but I wondered if do you feel like you're engaged in some larger project right now? Like you mentioned at the beginning, at some point that you've thought about writing a book about what happens when someone dies and what happens to all the people around them. 
and then didn't write that book or that book didn't seem commercially viable. But like in a way, but then I wrote the McElvain writing story. version. Yeah, you're writing that. And yeah. like, are these are these stories all circling around one thing in your mind, or are they all independent? Well, they are like creeping dangerously toward like not memoir exactly, but they're much more first person. And I did say to you, when you get to be my age, you start to think about the fact that you're going to die. And then I say to you, oh, I wanted to write a book about die. Like, you know, I mean, it's on my, I mean, I think that like, I'm now at the stage where I'm thinking about the larger questions and I'm, there's a lot of reckonings, but I also think that I'm at the point where I'm only thinking about the big questions and the difficulty of being a human as what matter most, right? Like that's what I want to keep focusing on. Our common frailties, our common bonds, our common difficulties, because clearly we are not going to bond politically as a nation, right? Like we are too far gone. We are too divided. And epistemologically, we see the world too differently. But we can bond over our kids with disabilities, about um, uh, the fact that we, we grieve, that we love, that we lose people, um, that we have friends, that we love our friends, that we hate our friends, that our, we have friendships that we miss, that we have friendships that we can't live without. I mean, it's true that I'm now just thinking about what what matters most before I go and what matters most, more than politics even? How can we all glue ourselves together in spite of our fractured politics? And maybe it's through this stuff. Well, thanks for coming here to talk about it. Thanks for asking such awesome questions about it. That's it for this week's show. Thank you to Jennifer Senior for joining me. Uh, The new story in The Atlantic is called The Ones We Sent Away. It is out now. This show was edited by Seth Kelly. Our show notes are from Susan Peterson. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Our show is brought to you in partnership with Vox. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. On, 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.